Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. I'm going on vacation this week and I'm trying to fit in five days worth of work into three days. So it's been a whirlwind, but I'm glad I made some time uh, to talk to Robert Breedlove on the show today. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I've been consuming uh, Robert's content from the other podcasts and other YouTube videos that he's been putting out. And I, and I really enjoyed getting him onto POV, specifically in the way that he thinks about these systems in kind of this ultra hot, large scale kind of mythopoetic types of narratives, uh, really going all the way back into the beginnings of history and seeing and setting the stage and then introducing a new technology and, and talking about how that impacted society. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting and and Robert does a really good job of spinning a story and letting us know how it unfolded. Yeah, and I think like one of the the coolest stories that he he spins is kind of going into Greek mythology and talking about a world before zero and how that essentially permeated through uh, human existence and understanding and explanation of the world. The story of the universe was centered around the lack of zero and then zero as this unstoppable idea um, really redefined all the institutions around them. Um, and he compares that to Bitcoin. Um, I certainly agree with him. Um, I don't know if necessarily David would go as far as saying that Bitcoin has the magnitude or the, you know, the power of that zero, you know, distilled upon the world. I'm curious to kind of get how you're digesting, you know, what Robert is saying. And if he's right, what does, you know, what does that mean for other cryptos? The concept and idea and theory behind like Bitcoin is the number zero and how the number zero significantly impacted the world around us, I think is really compelling and it's a great narrative. Um, however, the, the kind of breakdown that I see is like, you know, the, the actual number zero is, a, is, a, is an idea more than it is a useful uh, utility function, right? Like it's more of a concept that, and that allows people to see a new world, but it's the calculus and the other numbers and the negative numbers and the imaginary numbers, which we talk about, which Robert talks about as those came out of the concept of the, the letter zero or the number zero. Those are a result of the idea, but not the idea itself, right? And so like the, where, where my brain has gone is like, sure, Bitcoin is the number zero, but Ethereum or this other, any other crypto system that uh, takes on that idea and then expands upon it is not, is not the, the number zero, right? And so the, the, uh, the pushback I, I would bring was, would be to say that, um, you know, the, it's Bitcoin is just an idea and it's a really powerful idea, but it's the, the impact that it has on the world isn't explicitly from the number zero itself. It's the, it's the new wave of innovation, the new wave of ideas that it brings with it, even though it is not it itself. Well, I would push back because I, I think that Robert would as well in saying that the number zero itself is the technology and idea that allowed calculus to even function because calculus cannot exist without zero there, um, without the idea of a void. Uh, and in his presentations, he talks about number systems before zero were just actually more inefficient. Like mm -hmm. Roman numerals to so do 10. Okay, that's easy enough. Now let's do 100. Okay, that's a little bit harder. Let's do 10,000 in Roman numerals. Then it starts just getting really freaking hard to think that way. Whereas, you know, with the technology zero, um, it's much easier to describe 
that math, therefore even enabling calculus to emerge. And uh, he would say that finite, like perfect uh, scarcity in a hard cap in Bitcoin does that. And I could understand why you would think that additional cryptos in the wake of an existing crypto um, are kind of like inflation if they work. If they could work, it's kind of like inflation. Um, I think it's a lot more nuanced than that, but um, maybe that'd be a pushback to why the new cryptos, you know, can't necessarily have that same magnitude of the absolute scarcity that he's describing. Yeah, and I think this argument is in, impossible to actually completely parse apart, right? Like, you can't have calculus without zero, but at the same time, zero isn't the concept or value of calculus itself, right? And so, like, you couldn't have Ethereum without Bitcoin, but the value of Ethereum is not at Bitcoin's value, right? And so, like, at the same, so it's kind of arguing to the, it's arguing for the same thing, but really just saying that one of those two things is is uh, the common denominator, the the real substance, and the other one is just kind of an afterthought. Um, yeah. It is a little bit circular, so I do say where yeah, just, see where you're going with that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, hey, it's circular in both directions, right? No matter what. <laughs> Go um, check out our, our new uh, POV crypto uh, logo. It kind of talks about, it kind of is an illustration of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with that being said, a new logo, a new sponsor. Um, we, our newest sponsor is Alto IRA. Um, for you guys out there that are really into trading or you just want to get um, Bitcoin, Ether, and other crypto assets into your retirement account, um, you know that there are benefits, tax benefits of using an IRA for trading, for holding assets. Um, and Alto IRA enables you to do that with your favorite cryptos and Coinbase.com. Um, effectively, Coinbase has one of the most intuitive and easy to use trading platforms. And you can use Coinbase and trade within Coinbase and do everything that you want to do within Coinbase and capture the tax benefits of an IRA as well with Alto IRA. Um, just some facts about the IRA itself. Everything is custodied within Coinbase. You have 24 hour, 24 hour, 24 seven trading like with all crypto exchanges. Um, there are t- super low minimums, I think as low as $10 to participate and start using Bitcoin within your IRA. Um, and then like an IRA, everything is tax deferred, which is uh, why you would do it, right? The government is saying, if you keep this money and you'd say you're not going to use it until you're 65, uh, you don't have to pay taxes on it until you're 65. So uh, this is especially useful for you active traders just because every short-term capital gain is a massive hit on your margins. Um, and this will allow you to avoid that. Um, so make sure to check out Alto IRA at altoira.com backslash POV crypto. It's really important that you uh, use the link altoira.com backslash POV crypto so that way they know we sent you there. All right, and let's just get into the episode. This is Robert Breedlove. You guys, I'm super excited to have Robert Breedlove on the show. Robert, it's been way too long. I know we've been trying to, to organize this for a few months. You've been very busy, especially since you dropped your piece about Bitcoin and zero. How's it going? Welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for having me, CK. Glad to be here. 
Awesome. Well, Robert, I guess, why don't you help our audience understand a little bit about yourself? Uh, I know you've been on a lot of shows, so you don't have to get too deep, but why don't you give like the, the, the five minute introduction? Uh, sure. I'll give you even shorter than that. Uh, my name is Robert Breedlove, CEO of Parallax Digital. Um, we run a crypto asset hedge fund and consulting practice. Uh, my background is in accounting and finance. Got a master's and undergraduate in finance and accounting. I was a CPA for a number of years, um, fell down the rabbit hole really in discovered Bitcoin in 14, fell down the rabbit hole 16, 17. And um, yeah, just been writing about it a lot and trying to spread the good word uh, that honest money is back on the scene. <laughs> Robert, you've been making the rounds talking about your, uh, your, your connecting Bitcoin to the concept of zero and, and how revolutionary that was. And there's a couple of tidbits that you uh, frequently talk about um, and that relates kind of uh, the setting that we are in today to previous settings that uh, humans have been throughout history, which I always find comparisons like that to be super fascinating. However, I think a decent amount of this podcast, the, at least the Ethereum side of things, uh, would not, will not have been as familiar as the, the Bitcoin listeners. So for those that haven't heard or gotten their initial uh, toes in the water with regards to the concept of comparing Bitcoin to the number zero, can you kind of give us just the high level overview of, of that comparison and that thesis? Yeah, so the, the impetus for me to write this originally was my attempt to answer the question what makes Bitcoin different than all of the thousands of other crypto assets out there? And, um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a very easy answer necessarily. And it has a lot to do with the fact that Bitcoin was released first, kind of has this path dependent emergence, which I go into in the paper. Mm -hmm. um, and it also has to do with uh, just the nature of money and how it's valued based on its liquidity and network effects, um, how it serves as, how the scarcity of money historically has served as this shelling point, which is just like all else being equal, people default to holding the scarcest money. It's the most energy efficient strategy you can employ. And um, in that sense, you know, Bitcoin is the, the I, Bitcoin represents the discovery of the idea of absolute scarce money that, that I argue. Because again, nothing physical, we've, we've always used physical monies historically um, and nothing physical can guarantee a permanently fixed supply because everything physical is just a function of our time necessary to produce it. So Bitcoin really is a, a, a monumental breakthrough in the sense that we can have something with a guaranteed fixed supply. Um, and I, in trying to communicate how profound of a discovery that is, I was just was digging into history and was trying to find something relatable. that was kind of like, a, you know, an unstoppable idea, uh, which the, the quote, I reference in the pieces there's and a lot of people say this there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come and uh, the number zero is what I landed on and just at a, at a really high level like we haven't always had a concept for nothingness like we, we, we like even in Roman numerals they didn't have a number zero they had an Omicron a symbol that represented nothing but they didn't use it in arithmetic and basically lacking a zero severely inhibited a numeric system. Like you didn't get to um, bring in negative numbers. You weren't able to access imaginary numbers. Uh, it, it prevented it from being able, prevented users of the, of the numeral system without a zero to, from being able to discover calculus. And calculus is what every physical science is based on. So 
it's really mind blowing. Like everything you interact with in modernity, it's a configuration of matter based on calculus. At some point it touched or interacted with calculus to get into your hands. It's, it's Are really you familiar amazing. with uh, Eric Weinstein's podcast, The Portal? I am. I listened to a few episodes. Uh, uh, Quidam recommended that one to me. Mm, and yeah, I know. I know I, Quidam really I, likes that one. Yeah, I've heard some good ones, but I'm not. I'm not super down the road. The one I heard recently that really blew my mind was the one with mm. him and Teal. Yeah, they kept yeah. going back to something really shifted in the early 1970s, but they couldn't put their finger on it. <laughs> it's like all of science. Uh, you know, the universities became mm-hmm. corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Science became less mm-hmm. innovative. Mm-hmm. They were just going through this laundry list of uh, things, which I would say is you know, refer people to the website right. WTF yeah, happened I in exactly 1971. I mean, the the lack of honest money truly does corrupt a society. The the reason why I bring that up is because he's he calls calls it the portal because he is always discovering or finding these things that. Uh, aren't really a thing, but are this this new way of viewing things or this new perspective or maybe this new invention, but it's really an invention of an idea really than it is mm-hmm. an actual physical invention of a gadget or something. And because because something happened in the world that allowed us to take a new perspective on things, you are allowed to step through the portal and view the world from a new lens. And I think that is kind of like a, a concise uh, thesis of, of what you're saying zero is doing with, with the numerical system. Uh, whereas like the existence of zero actually created in large, um, a, a significantly, a, a whole new paradigm, a whole new dimension to operate inside of with numbers where like you, numbers used to go from one to infinity and then with the creation of in zero, uh, it goes from infinity to negative infinity. And then all the other uh, you know, imaginary numbers, calculus, and all just a much more diverse creation of new space to operate in. And I, and I think if I, if I gave the mic back to you, I think you would connect it to Bitcoin. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, everything we say, do, or make begins as an idea. Like if you want to get really nuts and bolts about it, like even we are ideas, like the DNA that composes us, it's just an idea. It's just a string of information, you know, it's quadratic code um, that configures matter to form what we are. And in the economy, like that's what basically what a market is, is we have a collision of ideas. People are interacting, trading, you know, when you trade someone a good or perform a service for someone, they're learning in the process, right? You give them a shovel and they start digging, they see how it works. They may have an idea how to modify it. Uh, they make a modification and, and trade it back. And so the whole market is this system for basically um, comparing your ideas, basically betting against other people in the marketplace that my idea is better than yours. And that's what entrepreneurship is. And so you really have, and that's, you know, econ- uh, economists would say you have to look past the scene and look into the unseen. So you have to look at these invisible principles that compose everything. And I think the big deal with zero is that it, it, it is symbolic of this philosophical concept called the void or shunyata, which the ancient Indians that discovered it called it. And it just represents, it's basically a, um, a concept for no concept. Like it's a placeholder for nothingness. And, you know, uh, the, one of the quotes I do in the piece is by Lao Tzu. He says, we shape the clay into a pot but it is the emptiness inside that holds whatever we want. Like most utility comes in the form of emptiness. Um, the other one he says about the wheel, right? Like 
it's uh, you you make it round with spokes, but it's the energy is stored and and the nothingness between it. So it's just a it's a really big concept. And when you look at the history of money, all demand is subjective. So people want different things based on different situations. But historically, the five properties of money that people have tended to select for are divisibility, durability, portability, recognizability, and very importantly, scarcity. And so when you look at the history of money, we basically landed on monetary metals because they best satisfied those five properties. And of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce. So therefore gold became money because of people naturally buying and selecting based on their own self-interest determined over the course of, you know, a multitude of transactions by a faceless multitude of people determined that gold was the best medium of exchange across time, right? And it was as if the free market was trying to zero in on something that was absolutely scarce, effectively. They wanted, because again, if I can hold something that no one else can create any more of, that basically is perfected scarcity. I know that my value cannot be diluted. And so when you map that on to Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is just pure information. So basically it maxes out those five properties. And because the, the genius behind what Satoshi did was combining game theory, uh, economics, and I, I guess thermodynamics too, in the sense that you actually have to um, commit energy, spend energy to acquire it, to make Bitcoin absolutely scarce, which is something, it's just a totally, as I argue, a one-time discovery for money. Because you can't, you can go and make something else that's absolutely, absolutely scarce, like we saw with Bitcoin Cash, the fork there. But because of Bitcoin's head start in terms of liquidity, network effects, and chain security, the mining network um, proliferation, that value just ends up collapsing back into it. So it's kind of like this economic singularity for money. And, um, and through that lens, I just compare that discovery that idea of absolutely scarce money as an unstoppable idea similar to the discovery of zero and that zero is the capstone for mathematics it really is and you know we didn't we actually didn't have infinity before zero zero led to the discovery of infinity even in Rome, uh, the the ancient roman belief it was uh based on the pythagorean belief system that they thought all shape and number was the same thing so even today, when we say x squared, that's literally, you're taking a line with a length of x, converting it into a square and calculating its area. That's what it means. We got that from the Pythagoreans. But they conceived as shape and numbers being identical, such that there was no such thing as nothing as a number, much less less than nothing, no negative numbers. And there was no infinity. So their whole uh, conception of the universe was finite. They thought the earth was the center of the universe. It was composed of atoms that had an impenetrable surface, couldn't go any lower. They thought the entire universe was a macrocosmic atom. So it had this outermost sheath of stars that you couldn't go beyond. Not that there was nothing beyond it. There's like, you couldn't go beyond it. It was right, just was finite. Yeah. Um, so zero, interestingly enough, just by being so practical, like it makes, basically makes a mathematical system faster, better, and less prone to error, right? It's just much more practical across the board. It, it out-competed all the other numeric systems and then blew out their philosophical model as well. It said, no, infinity is real. The void is real. And it just is such a profound thing to think that we, dis we discovered this experiential concept 
called the void, which by the way, the guy that discovered it, Brahmagupta is an ancient Indian mathematician, reportedly discovered it in meditation, which is crazy. Like he just touched the void, right? Came back and said, hey, we need a number for this. And then it has changed the world mm-hmm. and became the cornerstone for calculus that is the bedrock of all modernity. Everything we see or touch with that's modern is because of his discovery of zero. So Robert, you talk about the concept of uh, path dependency, and I, I might be using this wrong, but I, I was recently doing some thinking, and, and this was along the lines of Nick Carter's article, Settlement Assurances, which talks about um, the difference between Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. And really the, the difference between Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin is that one block of Bitcoin means a lot more with Bitcoin Cash. And right. so these two, these two universes were going to split off and in hindsight, we probably were, should have been able to see which one was going to win coming because like Bitcoin Cash is advertising itself as a payments network and Bitcoin is advertising itself as number go up. Like, well, what do you think is going to work? The one that makes its community rich or the one that makes its community be able to make payments better? Like, obviously, it's the one that is going to make the number go up. That's where the incentives lie. And so maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using the, the way that the path dependency the way you are, but like, I kind of see like, well, the, the fate of the Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin fork was determined from the get-go because of the path dependency of Bitcoin. Is that the, is that the right way that you're using it? Yeah, I think Nick and I are actually seeing a lot of the same thing. His is a much more sophisticated technical Mm-hmm. The settlement assurances, you can actually quantify that Bitcoin is better than all other crypto assets and clearly different. Mm-hmm. Um, but settlement assurances are a product of the energy that is backing the network, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, because there's so much energy going into establishing that, that block, um, each block means a lot more, and I think is kind of the gist of it. And again, you're back to that, to me, is the path-dependent emergence of Bitcoin. Because it was first... Because it was released into the world at a time where no comparative technology existed and that it, it, it sort of had this cover of you know misunderstanding or or mystique or people just writing it off that it was able to develop organically over time and the, the idea was able to diffuse into society people were able to set up mining rigs uh, was able to mature you know work out some of the early kinks and my my general argument is that 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 idiosyncratic sequence of events is irreplicable. You can't do that again. You try to release new Bitcoin into the world today, it is inevitably attacked. Like everyone's paying attention to this space now. We're talking about disrupting the most important technology in the world, which is gold. Like people don't understand necessarily that gold's the most important technology in the world, but when you come to understand that central banking is built on top of gold, and that central banking controls all of the, the money supply and pricing decisions in the world today. And we basically have, you know, monetary socialists that have captured the capitalist money gold and have influenced the world in a million ways, so I'm sure we'll get into. You come to see gold in a whole new light. It's like, wow, it really is a big deal. It is, the, it is still prime money in the world today. We may think that paper in our pocket is, but it's not. Tokenized government debt, versus free market money gold. And Bitcoin is disruptive to gold. It's superior across all those monetary properties. And it also introduces several other ones, but one that I think is really important is securability. And the fact that you can't, it's not easily confiscated or seized, which the state 
and central banks have basically built their business model on across history. Yeah, which definitely goes back to the concept of path depend dependency, right? And another mm -hmm. Nick Carter article talked about like how uh, countries that have strong property rights do better because capitalists and businesses and entrepreneurs feel more secure in companies that honor strong property rights. And where we've seen, uh, uh, and, and you've talked about this in some other podcasts where like the, the church has been replaced by the state and then the idea is that the state is then being re replaced by Bitcoin. In a similar vein, like we've seen a trend towards strong property rights throughout history because of perhaps its path dependency, because that's what fosters economy. That's what fosters businesses. That's what fosters, um, you know, commerce. That's and, and and mainly economy and commerce and and business and entrepreneurship. These are all scaffolding uh, for people, right? Like this is scaffolding for people to achieve what their own goals are. And the way that an economy is neutral about this, in the in the way that like a religion isn't or a, a country can sometimes not be they are not neutral they have subjective values like they they promote one group of people or, or over the other and therefore the economy inside of that nation state is filtered it's it's tilted it's it's uh um it's got a bias right and that bias impacts the economy and says like well some people are going to be able to use the scaffolding better than others and then some when some and that's because the nation state has captured the economy it's captured the money and it controls everything and, and you know, it honors property rights until the point where it doesn't want to honor them anymore. Except Bitcoin doesn't do that. Bitcoin doesn't care about your, your background, your, your race, your religion, your gender, whatever. It just gives you property rights, which offers new scaffolding uh, for people to build their world around. And that kind of gives it its path dependency into success. Like all we, people love property rights because that's what creates economy and economy is good. Um, so I'm, I'm fully on board. Yeah, I, I think it's important to be clear about the rules and definitions here. So one that I like to lay out for people very simply is capitalism has a bad rap today, but we don't have free market capitalist world, right? Money is one half of every transaction. Money is not freely determined on the market. Central banking is a socialistic structure. It's literally the fifth dictate in Marxist playbook. Like that's, it's not even arguable. That's what it is. Uh, capitalism simply means that you have the exclusive rights to the fruits of your labor. So whatever you go and work out and do and whatever value you create, you have rights to that. That's all it means. Socialism, on the other hand, means that the state has rights to that. They get to decide how you spend your time and effort. That's all that means. So I think it's like intuitively very obvious which of those models is better uh, morally. Which one and then it also, yeah, and then it also turns out practically, right? When, and to define property, like a lot of people think, oh, this table, that chair, this house, that's not property. Those are assets. Mm. Property is the publicly recognized relationship between you and that asset that you have exclusive and exhaustive rights to control that asset, trade that asset, whatever you've done to create value and earn it or build it, you then have the ability to trade that with others that have done the same thing. And it is through those acts of free exchange that people figure out the best ways to solve problems. Again, we're back to ideas colliding in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I have an, a perpetual, 
perpetual economic incentive to prove someone wrong in the marketplace with a better idea. And it is that, that sequence and series of betting that keeps pushing civilization forward. That's how, we, that's how we innovate. It never comes from a government structure. Like it, it must be done by people tinkering, right? And Nassim goes in, into depth about this, how we have this uh, delusion that a, a lot of innovation comes from academia when in fact it comes from tinkering, people in garages, you know, penicillins invented in the sink, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when you look at property rights and how they fit into an economic system, they basically just end up being the rules of the game, right? We're all playing this game, trying to prove each other wrong in the marketplace, but respecting our rights to our own time and labor and the product thereof. And when you start to violate or twist those rules of the game, the game collapses, right? And this is the true with any game, pick a game. And then tell me the rules are pliable. How mm-hmm. fun is that game? Yeah. And then who gets to decide the rules of or, that game? Or ask right? me to commit, you know, hours of my time to playing it. Or your life to playing yeah. it, right? Uh-huh. That's, what, that's what macroeconomics is. is this, mm-hmm. this, this infinite game of constantly trying to prove each other wrong in the marketplace. And by doing so, you create innovations that benefit everyone forever. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's really mind-blowing. But when you twist the rules, as socialistic structures do, and violate property rights, which monetary inflation is, when you increase the supply of money and give it to a select few, if it's not done uh, homogeneously, which it never is, it's always printed and given to, you know, kind of lent out into tiers of banks, that is equivalent to amending the list of property rights of who owns what in an economy. Because all you've done is shift productive claims from the people that had them originally to the people that receive new money first, as we all know in Bitcoin, cancel on effect. But that is, it's more than even a wealth distribution. It is, it's wealth destruction because when people lose trust in the rules of the game, they become defensive, they they trade less, they innovate less. The incentives become such that you want to align yourself uh, you want to get close to the governance of those rules because you're able to suck value out of everyone. So it really perverts the character of people too. And I would argue that's what you see in government today. And that's what you're seeing worldwide with this populist backlash is people are sick of it. Even if they don't cognitively understand it or can articulate it, they know it, they feel it, they see it. Like something is corrupt here, something is wrong. They're being, their time is being stolen. Their energy, their essence, their vital lifeblood is being sucked out of them by this invisible institution. And yeah, I think it's just, I, I argue, one of the quotes of the piece is that only unstoppable ideas can break otherwise immovable institutions. Hmm. And it was the, the comparison I make was the, the Catholic church, they premised their proselytizing efforts to people on that finite model of the universe. They're telling people, converting people to Christianity, um, and here's how the universe works. And they said, you know, here's the Aristotle model of the universe. It's finite, there's atoms, and it's, there's stars on the outside, Earth's in the center. Well, zero comes along as an unstoppable idea, and it blows out that philosophical model. And with it went the power of the church. That was the power base of the Catholic church. So all of a sudden, you know, the emperor has no clothes on, so to speak. And, um, you know, further, Zero led to all this technological innovation that led to the printing press and all this. Um, 
So I really think that, that Bitcoin representing the discovery of the absolute scarcity for money, it goes against the entrenched wishes of power structures like the Fed, that they're premised on the opposite model of the universe, so to speak, right? Infinite cash. The guy said it, the, the Fed guy said that recently in his piece, the Federal Reserve has infinite cash. Okay, anyone that's listening to this, please go divide by infinity and see what number you get. The answer is zero. So he's saying the US dollar in the long run has zero value. So be careful. That's a really concise way to put it. There's nothing more oxymoronic than putting infinite and cash right next to each other. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So Robert, I think this is important money. Yeah, I think this is actually a a really good transition point. I want to bring it back to, um, to, to like guaranteed scarcity. Um, Like how does that change the game? Can you talk specifically like, you know, what does introducing absolute scarcity do to the world in your mind? Yeah, I think a simple way to put it for for people that um, maybe are new to this is that, again, monetary inflation, when you're increasing the supply of money, like a select few group of people are able to increase the supply of money, they're able to extract wealth from everyone that is not able to increase the supply of money. That is taxation, right? Or you could possibly say it's even extortion. You're really forcing people to use this money that they have a back door into and they can suck value out of, right? The entire arc of human history (laughs) has seen people like fight for this and do anything they can to gain this ability, right? It used to be princes clipping their coins when coins are actually made of free market money, like monetary metal, they would clip the coin, keep all the residual content for themselves, you know, keep it in their war chest, reissue the coin to the public at the same face value. So they'd take a little vig on the coin issuance. And, you know, today we've gotten so off the rails that it's literally just a tokenized piece of paper representing government debt. There's nothing underlying it. It's just a, it's just the belief in the taxing authority of the government, essentially in perpetuity. That's what you're doing when you're holding or transacting dollars. And that is just, it's like a parasite on the economy. That's all monetary inflation is. It's whatever institution can gain control over the printer, can extract value from all the productive people that are tinkering, trading, figuring things out, you know, learning in real time by the stressors they encounter as an entrepreneur, because it's a painful process, right? But how many, what's the success rate of business? 95% failure rate, something like that. Like people, you only learn by failure. So people are going into the world with their capital, with their skin in the game, their time, their effort, their energy, their hopes, their dreams, and they're making bets on their ideas, trying to compare them to other people's and see who wins, right? And it's a painful process. But through that painful process is from which all innovations emerge. And so then you have this, on the the flip side of that would be central banking, where there is zero innovation occurring. There's zero skin in the game. They get to keep whatever value they suck off of people. And then if if they make a bad bet with the, um, as we see, we saw in 2008, right, with the housing crisis, banks made a bad bet, what happened? They just rubbed up money printer went burr and they sucked value back off of people. So they're privatizing all the gains, socializing all the losses. It's an economic mega wealth parasite. 
And that's what central banking is. It's, it's the biggest apparatus of criminality the world has ever had. And I think Bitcoin is just the stone, you know, slung into the eye of Goliath, as I say. It just breaks that model, that business model. You can no longer steal value from people via monetary inflation just by holding Bitcoin. And I, I think, you know, that's why it's such a big deal. And that's why people get so fired up about it, is that there really is finally a technology, a software that's really automating away the functions of and eating the central bank. The central bank that's driven wealth disparity, funded perpetual warfare, um, done all this, all this bad activity in the shadows for over a century now. I'm assuming you've read The uh, Sovereign Individual. I have. I recommend it highly. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. Well, in that case, then. So, yeah. So the, the idea is that like the, the government and the government's ability to uh, coerce and control people in ways that we initially agree with and then, you know, later perhaps disagree with. But at that point, it's too late. I think the the riots and the protests that are, are going on that we, that we talked about are a great, great uh, symbol of that where I totally agree. And, and we're seeing that across the world, right? So there are riots everywhere. And I mean, I, I guess there is systemic racism across the whole entire world, but like, do we really think that is what everyone is getting upset by? No, it's the fact that the, the institution of the state has developed and matured to the point where that, that it has stopped being a good service for people and started being a, a coercive and extractive service. And as all monopolies become, right? As all monopolies become, right. That is the nature of these systems. And, and like things, like organizational schemes that came before it, like the state is an organism, right? Like it's, it was born, it matured, it developed, and then now it's becoming senile. Now it's becoming inefficient and slow. And, and, and the, the money printer that we, that we talk about is uh, like, I got $1,200 because of coronavirus, but like the, the rest of the trillions of dollars that were printed just went straight into the stock market, which reflects mm -hmm. almost nothing for the majority of actual people of the world. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, now, and now there are protests everywhere across the globe. Mm -hmm. And I do not think that that is a coincidence. I, I agree completely. Um, and so... One thing on the money printing piece specifically, in the US, we're the central bank of the world. So it's actually, not only are we dumping, we're externalizing this inflation, not only on our own people, but we're also doing it on the world, right? Most international debts are denominated in dollars. Oil contracts are forcibly denominated in dollars. It's so the we, legacy of our colonialism. That's right. So when we won World War II, we structured it this way. It's by design, right? We were dollars to be pegged to gold, every other currency pegged to us so that we could externalize inflation, meaning we can send them paper that we can print ad infinitum and they send us stuff. And that's worked great for, you know, since the 1940s. We've, we've just done that. Um, we've benefited from that exorbitant privilege. Um, I wonder why the U.S. is the land of the free and the land of opportunity. I feel like the Cantillon effect definitely has a big part in that. That's absolutely right. But I think it also, it's so severed our skin in the game that you see us, you know, if you travel internationally, I think there's a distinct sense of not being so proud to be American sometimes. Like we, there are, are portions of our culture that are just out of touch with reality, I think. Like American exceptionalism, 
is asinine, right? To think that we're better than other people just because we were born on this continent. I mean, that's, I think that's the height of, of egoism. And uh, on the, the printing piece, I think the number we're at today is like $6 trillion, looks like total so far. We're just getting started, by the way. Um, because, because it's a leverage-based system, it requires more and more leverage to be sustainable. That came out to about $46,000 per U.S. household. And, you know, like you said, you received a $1,200 check, right? So call it $2,400 per household you received. Where do you think the rest of that money went? Like they, they send you just enough money to keep you calm, to try and buy your passivity, right? And they didn't even do this in 2008. 2008, they just recapitalized the banks. People weren't angry enough. But this time, um, you know, the shock is different and they, they're trying more exotic tactics. And now we're using helicopter money to try and keep people calm, keep people at home, keep people docile. And I don't know, I'm amazed how quickly things have changed since February, right? It's like we had 2020 so far is like a 1918 influenza, a 1929 style economics collapse, and a 1960s style social revolt all rolled into one. And I really think like that sovereign individual thesis is starting to play out. And we are, see, we are in the end game of fiat currency. And stock market at all time highs today with 40 million people unemployed, like we're at peak, peak market stupidity. Like price discovery has failed. Price discovery is, it's just turned into a casino now. You just put money, like people just buy stocks. Casino. Just buy stocks to shield yourself from inflation because everything is going up and no one understands why. There's no real economic production underlying it. And it's just, you know, it's peak monetary socialism, I think. And so for the same reasons, Soviet Russia collapsed. They tried to control the entire economy, but that enforcement is very costly, right? By the end of the Soviet Union, I think 30% of their workforce were paid informants. So people telling on each other for breaking the rules. It was illegal to be sad in the Soviet Union because to be sad or depressed meant that the state's plan was not going right because it was a utopia, right? That thing collapsed because it, it created all these uh, control and enforcement costs that made it unsustainable. So I think for the same mathematical reasons we saw absolute socialism collapse in Soviet Russia, we're going to see monetary socialism collapse everywhere in the world. And we go back to monetary capitalism, which it's either gold or Bitcoin. And I argue Bitcoin superior. I want to ask a, a, a little bit of your take on Ethereum related subjects. Are you familiar with EIP 1559? I'm not. Okay. Uh, so this changes up the fee markets. And so when you uh, make a transaction on Ethereum, and this, this solves gas estimation, and, and in Bitcoin, this would be like price, price estimation, right? So like, how do, we, how do we figure out a way to make sure that the, the amount uh, for, of a transaction fee that you pay is actually what you need to pay in order to get your uh, transaction included? Like that's a, kind of an unsolved problem in, across all of spheres. And so EIP-1559 is this attempt to fix that, where instead of paying your transaction fee to the miner, uh, you burn it, basically. And this kind of creates a uh, difficulty adjustment type of mechanism based on congestion of the network. And so if uh, the network is congested, uh, the number that you need to pay goes up. And then if it's less congested, the number goes down. And then you can also tip, uh, which then goes to the validators, the miners, 
but it's really just a small portion of the overall fee. The, the, the main point is that the fees that get burned or that get spent get burned rather than going to the miners. And the reason why Ethereum does this is because there's issuance, right? Like there's perpetual issuance because Ethereum promotes the security of the blockchain uh, sooner than it does the scarcity of the asset, right? Like Bitcoin holds 21 million uh, first in its primacy and then, and then the security follows that. The Ethereum, is, it goes security first and then re, uh, the minimum viable issuance of Ether, the asset afterwards. The point is, is that the whole uh, idea is that when you have a strong, healthy economy, we're burning a lot of ETH, like we're making it deflate. We're turning it into a deflationary asset. At the same time, we have new issuance to counteract that. But the, the narrative that, that some people like myself included have been spinning is like, well, when this economy is really rolling and that flywheel is, is really turning, we'll have issuance on, on one side and burning on the other. And, be, and the burning is a really elegant solution because it benefits no particular person at all. It just burn, yeah. it benefits everyone equally. It's like universal uh, inflation. Right. Uh, uh, universal deflation. Well, it's as if the central bank printed money and gave it to everyone evenly. Yes, yes. And, and then when it charged taxes, it didn't go back to the government. It just disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so like, you, there are some costs and benefits to this, right? Like uh, the, the benefit is that, uh, you know, if, that, if the Ethereum economy is really healthy, well, then we're at the, the number of Ether will actually go down. Like the burning amount will be surpassing the issuance amount. The cost mm -hmm. of this is that you don't know what the long-term supply of ether is right and and mm -hmm. so you your ether's not at zero right it is not the void it is something positive or negative or both mm -hmm. depending on what the time is so I was, I was wanting to get your takes on on how you think about that mechanism well one of the things i don't think is talked enough about in bitcoin uh, in, in terms of an economic principle is that it's the closest thing we've ever had to perfect information so it's you know the old adage, there's three certainties in life or two certainties in life, death and taxes. It's like now we have death taxes, 21 million Bitcoin. Again, back looking at those market actors that are all trying to figure stuff out, um, competing with each other, like you can consider money, even gold was like the most, no, most predictable thing, right? That's why it became money essentially, because no matter how much time was allocated towards its production, its supply increased the least. So you could basically trust, you didn't need to trust anyone, you could just trust natural law that the supply of gold would be the most reliably fixed and stable across time. And looking at Bitcoin, it's, it's perfectly transparent, perfectly knowable, it's, it's perfect information, right? Like when you're playing chess, that's a game of perfect information. You can see all the pieces, you know all the moves, you know everything about the game. There's nothing, there's nothing exogenous to the game that can throw off your strategy. You have perfect information. Um, whereas, you know, with central banking, it's like the complete opposite. You have no idea what's gonna happen, like what government's gonna default, how much they're gonna print, how much they've already printed, who gets to decide, who, who even benefits. We don't know who profits from the production. The shareholders of the Fed are undisclosed, so we don't know that. So I think, and to generate more wealth, you need to get closer to the economic principle of perfect competition. And perfect information is a prerequisite for perfect competition. So I think as money, uh, you, you know, again, Bitcoin has just sort of maxed it out. You know, you need that absolute scarcity, that perfect predictability. 
Um, as far as Ethereum goes, I mean, that sounds like an interesting concept, but it's certainly less knowable than Bitcoin. And so I don't think it, it serves, it would not outcompete Bitcoin as money on that fact alone. Like even if, even if you gave it equal market cap, equal miner share, mine share, all the network effects, if it has an unknowable terminal supply, it's less reliable as money, right? People are gonna gravitate towards the rules that are known and that, that's, you know, Bitcoin's optimized that. So I, I often think Bitcoiners uh, make arguments that are closer to Bitcoin should, not Bitcoin will. Like Bitcoin should be the money of the world because of these quality, these qualities that it has, these characteristics of it, that it has of, you know, fairness, predictability, uh, uh, stability, et cetera. Uh, and so that should make it good money, not that it necessarily will make it good money. Now, I totally, totally agree with you that like the, the in unpredictability of ether's uh, supply and therefore ether scarcity does thwart it at being something akin to gold, right? A new gold. Like that's not, that's not really in the Ethereum narrative. It's not really in the Ethereum social contract. However, I do believe that EIP-1559 and the upside potential that it gives towards people that, that uh, you know, adopt the Ethereum ecosystem, because the, what the burning does is, or what EIP-1559 does is it gives upside exposure to all the Ether holders on the growth of the network directly, right? Rather than indirectly, right? So it's like, it's like if Bitcoin actually grew larger, it actually would become more scarce. Like, well, then, then you lose the dependency, but you also get active. It's actively deflationary rather than passively deflationary. So it is actually this incentive mechanism to actually buy in early and then help promote the security of Ethereum. And so like, whereas I totally, I totally am aligned with all the, all the things you said, where like this Bitcoin would make good money I think the, the, the actively deflationary nature of Ethereum actually is a concrete fundamental part of its value proposition that will actually bootstrap it into reality. I, yeah, I honestly, you know, I got actually started, I'd heard of Bitcoin in 14, wrote it off, just all the fallacy, typical fallacies. And it was in studying Ethereum in 2016, and I landed on the concept of smart contracts. When I read Zabo's piece on smart contracts, that was my light bulb moment. I was like, holy shit, this is gonna be huge. So I, I have like a kind of a sentimental place for Ethereum, but uh, having you know invested in this space and studied it for a longer period of time, I the problem with Ethereum, with Ethereum is in theory, right? Everything that we talk about with Ethereum is in theory. And all Bitcoin needs to do, it's competing for the market for money. And all it needs to do is continue doing what it has done flawlessly for the past 11 years, right? No, no complex computer science problems need to be solved. No, I mean, maybe you could argue some new features need to be added, but all of these are largely off the core protocol. Um, it just needs to keep turning out a block every 10 minutes. Whereas Ethereum has this, super convoluted, complex, adaptive thing. And I'm not, maybe it could actually compete um, and will be successful. But I would argue that the addressable market for Bitcoin, you know, global money, call it 80 to $100 trillion. I think you could look at the entire 
alternative crypto asset space and say maybe it has a total addressable market of $20 trillion. So even if Ethereum succeeded like beyond your wildest dreams, I don't think its market cap can get much higher than that, even if it outcompeted all other alternative crypto assets, which maybe I haven't done the math, but maybe on a magnitude basis, that means there's more upside potential on Ethereum if that you know, much more unlikely case were to play out. But I just think Bitcoin is, especially for sure in the space, it's the safest bet, but I think it's one of the safest bets in the world. Um, you know, it's clearly, and I'm, I'm not, this is not investment advice. Black swans by definition are unknowable, right? They're unknown unknowns. So everything that we're talking about today is black swan vulnerable. Everything's always black swan vulnerable, but there's just not, a lot of chinks in Bitcoin's armor, so to speak, whereas Ethereum, I think, is just much more theoretical. So, I kind of want to, you know, uh, push back a little bit and not because I, I disagree with you, but I think a lot of our audience may disagree with you. They would say that there are chinks in Bitcoin's armor. And one of the reasons why you need to jump through these hoops in Ethereum uh, to have stakers, to have inflation, to have burning is because uh, mining and the block reward reducing to zero is not sustainable. Do you have any responses to uh, those concerns? Yeah, there's a great piece that Dan Held wrote about this called Bitcoin Security is Fine. And he goes in pretty good detail about why he thinks the fee market's going to be more than necessary to offset uh, the, the, the Coinbase subsidy. And I tend to agree, you know, Bitcoin, it is it's very much a binary bet, right? It's either going to work as we think it's going to work and be a, a, a major, you know, quote unquote reserve asset. I don't know if that will even have the same definition after it succeeds or it's not. So there's not, I don't think there's going to be a lot of this middle ground. Um, and I do appreciate that, that Ethereum and alternative crypto assets are, you know, pushing the envelope and trying new things. And I actually, I consider that as, you know, clearly Bitcoin inspired all of this. I, I view that as another benefit of open source technology and that it creates its own market proving grounds. If Ethereum does go out and discover some new advanced feature that makes sense and is simple enough to be incorporated into the core Bitcoin protocol, then I think that would happen, right? So I... I feel very strongly that it is prudent for your crypto asset portfolio to be no more aggressive than 80, 20 Bitcoin, everything else. And, and with everything else, I include Ethereum. And I think the most conservative you would be is 100, zero Bitcoin, everything else. Um, that's just my position. It's my perspective. I, you know, Again, I've stopped. I didn't even hear about the, the EP199 you just mentioned. I don't do as much homework on Ethereum as I used to, but from an economic principled perspective, that's my, that's how I see it. Shall I wrap up? You're muted. You don't have a response to that. I have one more question. So I guess in, in your mind, like what does, what does finance look like in the Bitcoin world? Because I, I've actually like, push this uh, criticism on uh, DeFi a lot that it's a little skeuomorphic to how finance works today. And I, I kind of agree with you on a fundamental level that Bitcoin is this thing kind of like zero where it completely redefines how we even look at the world of ownership and property and measuring value. And that uh, finance today is not even a good 
example of, you know, how people are going to, you know, trade derivatives and trade value into the future. Do you have any thoughts around like Bitcoin as, you know, this, this kind of, uh, I guess, portal into the new world of finance and what that looks like? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and I can speculate a little bit. Clearly nobody knows, but I think the first thing that's obvious is, you know, we're 325, 350% debt to GDP today. Like that number is not natural. That's a fiat finance uh, aberration. And that I think under a true capitalist system would flip back to something more like 10 or 20% of world GDP. So you would see a collapse in debt markets where because you know Bitcoin provides instantaneous global final settlement, you're just gonna see a lot more settlement and a lot less promises, right? The whole thing, what banking again is, is it was built on top of gold because gold is difficult, expensive, hard to safeguard and transport. So you can't settle with finality quickly and easily, which is an, it's an inhibiting force on economic activity, right? But Bitcoin blows that out of the water. All of a sudden you can beam gold around the planet at the speed of light, right? So I think with instantaneous final settlement, it's just going to make markets be of, of the economy, debt will be a much smaller component. It will be a much more equity-based economy, which actually will generate a lot more, a lot more wealth and subject it to fewer and less severe booms and busts. So we're going to, you know, just like the Austrians theorize, we'll see a, a stabilization of the business cycle. Um, as far as what the, the institutions look like, I mean, it's, again, it's really hard to say. I think it's less intermediated because you just don't need as many um, you know, accountants, lawyers, bankers, you don't need this bureaucratic, these bureaucratic layers to establish trust because you can just settle with finality on the blockchain or you can um, map it out into a smart contract, right? Into things that are much more trustless. So we'll be shifting our trust function from social institutions to, um, to distributed software, I think in a nutshell. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think it's a much more healthy, and historically accurate market and that it's just more equity based and, and we'll, we'll get past all this debt mania that um, central banking has imposed upon us. No, I don't really want to push that back. Sorry. All right. Well, in that case, let's, let's wrap it up. Robert, thanks for coming on. I thought, I think this is interesting and you, the way that you describe things is very simplistic and, and, it, and it really kind of cuts to the core of, of the idea. I really loved how uh, you described the difference between capitalism and, and socialism. Um, and you, 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 that's just one example of how you've broken down a lot of these different concepts throughout this interview and all of your other um, works that you've done. So uh, thanks for distilling this in such an elegant and understandable way. I really appreciate that. Thank you, man. I really appreciate the compliment. Um, Robert, I think, I think you do a great job with uh, turning, uh, bringing in a little bit of mythology and a little bit of uh, poetic poeticness into, into tech, this uh, new technology, which is definitely, definitely helps people uh, resonate, I think, on emotional level uh, better than they otherwise would have from somebody with a, a more technical mindset. So people like you are super valuable in this space. So thanks for putting out the content of what you do. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. I do, I will say at this point in the rabbit hole, I do believe that um, 
the monetary standard and the moral standard are the same thing. So we do have a moral imperative to bring honest money back into the world. Yeah, Robert, for those who want to uh, totally agree, and for those who want to read more about your works, learn more about Parallax Digital, um, where can they find you? Sure, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my last name is Breedlove. That's B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E. So my Twitter handle is Breedlove22. And then I post uh, most of my writings on Medium. Uh, and more recently, I put them on Dig as well, D-I-G-G.com. And then our website is parallaxdigital.io, P-A-R-A, Double L A X digital dot I O. Awesome. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, guys. Peace. All right. Fantastic. We'll start